Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. <laughs> Here we go. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser, Professor of History and Co-Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program here at Ashland University. Welcome to our second season of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we'll do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document while also analyzing its impact on American history, its people, and its thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, those of you who are joining us will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. To help us begin to think about the topics of this year's webinars, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database available at TAH.org. And you, too, can participate in the conversation by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. The topic of today's program, George Kennan's long telegram. To help discuss it are Dr. David Krugler, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin at Platteville, and Dr. Stephen Toodle, professor of history at the College of the Sequoias. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you, John. It's great to be here as well. Well, just a uh, let me just ask about the origins of this uh, this document. Why was it written? How did it come to be? Do you want to take this one, or you want me to take it? I think, uh, Stephen, since you you studied with the man who wrote the definitive biography of Kennan, you should you should get us started. Well, let me correct this. I did not study with the guy who wrote. Uh, I studied with the guy who shared an office with the guy who wrote the... <laughs> uh, so I studied with the guy who wrote the biography, but I'm asking the questions. Okay, so uh, so what, what we're talking about here is uh, that these two historians, the definitive biography of Harry Truman was written by Alonzo Hamby, who was my advisor. Um, but Alonzo Hamby, for 30 years, shared an office with John Lewis Caddis, who one year before I got into school uh, moved to uh, Yale, I think, right? Um, and so, and he is uh, George Kennan's official biographer. The deal that he had with, uh, this is Gaddis, the deal that Gaddis had with Kennan was that uh, it was all open access and everything, and then, um, and then his, uh, but he had to not publish it until he died. Well, Kennan lived for a long time, and people began to wonder if, if Kennan was going to outlive Gaddis. Well, uh, Kennan eventually died. Gaddis published the book. And uh, for those of you who are interested, um, I highly recommend Gaddis's biography of um, uh, George Kennan. Now, uh, which brings us to this is the definitive story of uh, of Kennan. I, you know, Gaddis has forgotten more about George Kennan than any of us will ever know, but um, 
it, it really is, you know, he spent a lifetime learning uh, this guy. So the, the story of the long telegram, I guess it's in some ways fitting since, you know, Putin just won his election. Uh, you know, he squeaked by with 75% of the vote, right? That um, um, the origins of the long telegram are that Stalin had to pretend to win an election too. So in, when Stalin was going to pretend to win an election, he had to give a speech. And this uh, speech was sort of, you know, the kind of thing that Kennan was used to hearing. It was not, um, uh, it didn't have anything in it that was particularly new for Kennan, uh, who was an old hand in Russia, although a young guy, um, but, you know, maybe compared uh, compared to actual old men. Uh, but um, uh, so he was asked to prepare a series of, co uh, you know, his comments on this speech from uh, about Stalin's speech. And the substance of the long telegram is stuff that Kennan had been saying a long time. He'd prepared a memo, uh, memos that just kind of sat around for a long time. There's a one of our other documents is NSC 68. There's a proud history of that document being ignored also for a long time. But it's a, it's a good example of why you want to... Uh, 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 sometimes a document has to meet its time. So anyway, um, he's asked to write up the response. Uh, he puts it off for too long. And then as almost a stunt... Uh, he sends this report on Stalin's speech and Soviet intentions. He sends it as a long telegram. And it arrives in DC at just the right moment um, because uh, people were looking for more guidance about Soviet intention at that time. So maybe I'll stop at my answer right there so we can move on to the next questions. But that, that's, what, that's what got the document going. Dave, is there anything you care to add to that? Yeah, uh, I'd like to also point out that the um, Secretary of State, George Marshall, Mar Marshall had asked Kennan to provide this um, because of the Soviet Union's response to uh, the formation of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So a, a lot of what's in the, the world tele uh, in the long telegram is related to uh, what the Soviet Union thinks about the capitalist financial world uh, and this network of capitalist countries. And we see that in some key passages where, where Kennan is commenting uh, on how the Soviet Union views capitalist countries and, and how it's going to try and sow divisions among them, particularly between the United States and Great Britain. And I think that's key because uh, the Soviet Union's concern about the creation of these post-war international financial institutions led by the United States and based firmly on capitalist principles and practices um, with the expected outcomes of capitalism, that is a major cause of this fearfulness within the Soviet Union that Kennan uh, spends a lot of time writing. All right. So, um, hold on, before we move on, because uh, yeah. I'll, I'll always defer to Krugler on this stuff because, you know, he, he's the master. But uh, I, in the new biography of Kennan, I should probably check the footnote to see what his source is on this, but um, but uh, Gaddis does say in this biography that the that the long telegram was not 
written in response. Uh, it's a, it's a, the exact quote, because I have it open here, is, nor was it a response to an anguished cry of bewilderment from the Treasury Department over the USSR's refusal to join the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. So I, if you want me to, I can check the source while we move on to the next issue, if, we, if you want to see where he gets that from, because I don't know where he got it from. But uh, Well, let's talk, about, let's talk about Kennan and how he came to this understanding of the, of the nature of the USSR, and, and what is the nature of that, that understanding? I'll let you go first this time. Okay, uh, thanks. Yeah, just uh, I didn't um, know that uh, uh, Gaddis had put that particular point uh, about the sources uh, of the um, the uh, invitation uh, to uh, to Kennan. So that that's interesting to note. Off the yeah. You know, I wouldn't have remembered it either. It's just that I happened to open it to that page right before we started this, this uh, web. You started reading the book yeah. five minutes before the yeah. webinar. Just cramming it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> To get to, to John's uh, great question, um, I think, you know, John, in the introduction you mentioned we would, we would look at the literary qualities of documents. And uh, for those familiar with um, basic diplomatic writing, that seems to be quite a tall order. What, what literary quality could we find in any diplomatic correspondence, let alone a telegram? But much of the content and, and much of the style of the long telegram has a literary quality to it, and at the beginning of the of the um, message, Kennan um, apologizes for for going on at such length and, and using the cable technology uh, to send uh, such a lengthy document. But but he's indulging it and asking for the indulgence of his superiors in Washington uh, to use the cable that way because he's it's really long form diplomatic analysis. I mean, he wants to go into the history of the Soviet Union and in Russian history before that and look at patterns of viewing the world by the czars uh, and by Soviet rulers and under Stalin as well and, and, and detect patterns there. Um, and so in, in, in this sense, the, the, the long telegram is notable for how wide ranging it is in, in what it's looking at and, and the topics that it's exploring and, and the way it's presented. Hmm. Yeah. I Agree with everything he said. One of the the couple of other things about Kennan's background was Kennan was uh, had a history background, and he was obsessed with Russian history and Russian literature. And um, Russians can be very uh, snobbish about it's it's sort of weird because you think well the Soviets were supposed to wipe out all of this you know uh, snobbishness about the the uh, the intellectual class and all this stuff, but. The fact that Kennan's Russian was high literary, you know, very good Russian was noted by uh, more than one person uh, on the other side. Whereas like uh, uh, Chip Bolin, who also spoke Russian, I think uh, somebody said that his Russian sounded like street Russian, which I don't, I don't know what that sounds like. But anyway, so uh, but he, he his everything he wrote was deeply informed with Russian history. And I hope we have a chance to get to this because I was really looking forward to talking to David about this. Um, it, well, I don't want to ruin it yet. Uh, <laughs> I, I, have, I have questions myself about Kennan, and, and I want to I want to get and I, Mosier, I want you to jump jump in too later on because I have some stuff. I have some crazy thoughts about Kennan that I want to bounce off you guys eventually. So the other thing I'd say about Kennan's background is that he was. Um, 
a very strange mixture of, on one hand, super informed by Russian history. So my early criticism of him was always that maybe he was underplaying the role of ideology, you know, the underplaying the role of communism in Soviet intentions and overplaying the role of Russian history. I, I think I've switched on that <laughs> and sort of come around to thinking he was actually, maybe he was right and he was uniquely right and uniquely situated to, uh, to see the specific ways that dropping communism into the Russian experience would inform his judgments. So uh, Kennan himself, because he had such strong opinions, also was known to throw a few elbows and um, never, you know, he didn't quite, he wasn't super secure about his position, but he had this confidence bordering on arrogance because he was so, because of, he was so talented. Um, but his, the, but the, the organization of the telegram is superb. The literary qualities of it are superb. Uh, you don't see writing quite this good in a lot of other um, diplomatic cables. It, it, so, it's pretty remarkable. So Kennan is a, is, a, is a diplomat who came to the position through a humanistic understanding as opposed to a, uh, uh, a numbers-crunching, data-hoarding uh, approach. And, and certainly you see this reflected in his, uh, in his account of, 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 or his explanation of why the Soviets behave as they do. Um, one of the most interesting parts of this for me is how he talks about, he, he lays out, first of all, what the, the basics of the Soviet worldview are, uh, fundamental, uh, unalterable hostility, uh, inability for coexistence between communism and capitalism, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then after laying this out, he says, not only is this not shared by the average Russian person, but it is all demonstrably false. In fact, it doesn't even take much uh, knowledge to, to debunk this view. Tell us about his explanation for why the Soviet leadership would embrace a position that anyone with a, with a high school education observing this kind of thing would have been able to, uh, 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 to see is, 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 is not only false, but, but ludicrous. Um, well, you, you want me to take this one first? I can't remember who took the last one. Uh, I've already lost my place. Uh, well, I was, was going to make a connection back yeah, uh, to what you said, Stephen, um, that um, Kennan is looking at this in two ways, right? I mean, what are the Soviets doing and what did the, the czars do before them? And, and to answer John's question, um, what Kennan says about the Soviet leading or ruling class's ability to um, put forward this ludicrous uh, and implausible scenario about the world, this is how they justify being a totalitarian state and having um, a police state that, that dis, uh, dispenses with the critics uh, summarily uh, and in large numbers. So they are able to justify having this apparatus and terrorizing their domestic population, suppressing uh, freedom of speech and, and, and suppressing any whiff of dissent because they need to enforce the reality 
they've they've created, and then that feeds itself because um, they're going into this already paranoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say um, the the more direct answer to John's question is they wanted something else to be true. You know, the, one of the things that I think um, the way we sort of have to teach history, and I know most of these people who are logged in are history teachers, you know, when we teach history, the timelines tend to get a little bit compressed and then things get segmented. You know, it's the sort of when you when you have to cover a lot of material, we have to compress things and segment them. And so one of the things that kind of gets lost is, I mean, when we're teaching a survey course or something like that, we tend to just sort of say, uh, you know, containment, right? This is the policy of the United States, containment, right? As if it arrives fully formed, here it is, long telegram, this is it. And from Truman through Reagan, it's the same. It's this thing called containment. But once you start looking into the Roosevelt administration in detail, once you start looking into the State Department during Roosevelt, then you start looking into the the Truman administration and the fact that Truman is taking over. Um, I think at one point when I was doing the foreign policy class, we counted five different policies in a few months of the Truman administration vis-a-vis the Soviets. So, you know, there wasn't one policy. And they wanted everything else to be true except for this. Mm. (laughs) So when the long telegram comes along, this is the thing that they don't really want to be true. Um, I will say, and I want to maybe I'll throw this open as a question about you guys. Have you ever heard, or are you sympathetic to the argument that Kennan, in some ways, almost causes the Cold War because of the accuracy of the long telegram in so many other areas, but he also wanted the American government to sort of um, give in and accept the whole sphere of influence uh, way of looking at the globe. So uh, there's this very famous meeting where with uh, Kennan and uh, Harry Hopkins, where Hopkins says, uh, so it's just sin and we're again it. You know, in other words, we're not going to really challenge the results or look at what's going on in Poland. And Kennan sort of says, yeah, that's right. You know, that's the Soviet sphere of influence. Pretend to care and move on. You know? I do, I, I do want to get to the, the, the long-term uh, importance of the long telegram and how it may have actually shaped U.S. foreign policy. I'd like to spend a little more time, though, teasing out the various arguments here. And, 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 and why I ask about, um, uh, you know, why on the one hand we have these premises that, 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 are, that, are, that the, the Soviet leadership clings to in spite of obvious overwhelming evidence against it, leads to, in, in a couple places to talk about the attitude, and, and it may not be merely Soviet, it is the Russian attitude toward objective truth that they simply don't understand truth the way that we do in the Anglo-American tradition. Could uh, either or both of you speak to that a little bit? Well, um, this is Marxism, right? I mean, material forces drive history. There's an objective reality that can be uh, detected, and with the proper tools and uh, foundational viewpoint, one can predict where history is going. Uh, so that is that is an objective reality, and so I think 
uh, Kennan is assuming his readership is, is familiar with these basics about Marxism and the, and the Marxist belief in an objective reality and truth and a singular one, and, and there's no need to elaborate on that, uh, and that that contrasts sharply with um, uh, an Anglo-American tradition or other traditions in the West of uh, being more deductive, of collecting your evidence and, and, and making inferences uh, based upon that and testing hypotheses and so forth. Yeah, here's his, his quote, and the way it comes up on my print is it's the middle of page five. The very disrespect of Russians for objective truth, indeed their disbelief in its existence, leads them to view all stated facts as instruments for furtherance of one ulterior purpose or another. That's just a, that's a, that's a, that seems to be a remarkable thing to, uh, to say, and certainly if it's true, it's definitely going to color the approach that the United States should take. If, if, if you're dealing with a country that doesn't reje that, that, that rejects objective truth, or, or at least says you, you capitalists may have your objective truth, but it's not what, what we hold, then what purpose is there in even having a negotiation with that power? Well, the story I like to tell my students, if they really want to wrap your heads around this like Marxist concept of truth, or how they viewed history or, or progress. Um, take them back to the uh, uh, Russian Revolution when Trotsky was named the foreign minister, and he said, well, why, why, why do we need to have a foreign minister? You know, All I'm going to do is publish a few treaties and close up shop. Obviously, because the revolution has already started, and we won't need a foreign ministry because soon there won't be countries anymore. So why would we need a foreign minister, you know, to negotiate the end of this war? The, the thing that you, that's really hard for us to understand is that Bolsheviks were Bolsheviks, that they really did believe the things that they were saying. And not, I, I would even take it a step further and say not just that the truth doesn't matter in terms of like the objective truth, it's you can create a, a new reality, a new Marxist reality, um, uh, and and I, they would say that they weren't creating it. They would just say, this is science, as it was revealed through, you know, Marx and Lenin and uh, the great Stalin. Um, but the other the other uh, phrase that I use, and it dates a little bit back, because I always try to tell my students the Cold War started when the Russian Revolution started, but we just didn't care. Uh, and... Um, uh, you go back to their discussions of what they call two-track diplomacy, which is we realize that the capitalist world wants to engage in this thing called diplomacy, but we're actually trying to destroy all of them. So nothing we do or say to them uh, matters. Uh, it, 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 it's, you can say whatever you want. You can do whatever you want because that's just – us pretending to exist in this sort of capitalist reality, when really the real reality is is the Marxist scientific reality mm. that is driving all of human history. Dave, do you have uh, anything you care to add, add to that? Uh, well, you know, this I think this is a good point to bring up the first question we, we received on the uh, chat feature. Someone asked, what other options besides Kennan's were available to the United States? And um, I mean, let's just reemphasize one point Kennan is, is making is that uh, negotiation uh, with uh, the Soviet Union is going to be very difficult 
because of how stubbornly they're holding to holding fast to this reality. And uh, but there are a lot of Americans who uh, are saying we can work with with the Soviets. I mean, this is what propels uh, Henry Wallace to, to his uh, presidential campaign in '48 after. Um, you know, he fully breaks with uh, the Truman wing of the Democratic Party. And, of course, he's fired uh, his Commerce Secretary uh, by Truman because he gave a, uh, a pro-cooperation with uh, Soviet Union speech. So uh, that's one option that's, that's out there, but it's not being taken seriously because experts like Kennan are saying uh, that's um, uh, just impossible utopianism. Hmm. Yeah, and the other thing I'd add is that when we talk talk about options, uh, the we tend to think of of these things as in a sort of dualistic nature. Like either we're going for a hard line with the Soviets or a soft line with the Soviets. And in some ways, I always think of of Kennan's position as in some ways being too hard, and in other ways being too soft. Like uh, he's, I think he's being accurate when he is describing Soviet. Uh, mindset, Soviet intentions, but I would also say that, you know, to me, uh, you you can sometimes exhibit a hard line with, without it's it's almost like I don't know. This is the thing that's rough with, with me about Kennan is, in some ways, he's very optimistic because he he believes unlike a lot of people. I mean, some people point out about the long telegram. They say it's very optimistic because Kennan's underlying belief is that we're ultimately going to win because their system is based on a lie and ours is based on the truth, so eventually we're going to win. So on one hand, that's very optimistic. But on the other hand, it's very cynical about um, whether it's worthwhile to engage. I think you can still engage and be a hardliner at the same time. So I, I just I, I don't know. I mean, this is all just a fun game to play. But I caution students, um, don't think that, 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 that there are only two options here, uh, that, that uh, this isn't a, a, a binary choice here. Let's talk a minute about, uh, about the role of Marxism in, uh, in, in Soviet behavior, at least as Kennan saw it. Is, you had said earlier, Stephen, that uh, that you would you would originally thought that he had overestimated the history, but underestimated the uh, uh, the role of ideology. But now you have reversed yourself on that. Do you say something more about it? At times, at times it seems to me that Kennan, uh, although he takes ideologically the ideology seriously, um, he wants to promote the idea that it's a product of something deeper and that really it, you, what Americans need to do is to understand the deeper thing more than they understand the ideology. What do you think about that? Um, well, so I always think of, it, think of it this way as a sort of mind experiment, right? You take my average American classroom full of students and you hand them the Communist Manifesto and they do the very American thing, which is they read past all of the horrible stuff, and they get to the part about free textbooks, and they say, ah, there's a good idea in here. <laughs> you know, like, this is a very American thing to do, which is to sort of 
take the one thing out that we agree with and say, hey, it makes some good points, you know. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's not all black and white. But what <laughs> what we often fail to do as Americans uh, is to take ideology seriously and understand when they write all of this stuff, they mean all of it. So uh, as another sort of mental exercise, you take communism or uh, and you drop it in um, – different civilizations, you're going to get a different result. I think I think one of the things I... Um, I've always been more fond of NFC 162-2. That's always been my favorite Cold War document. That's the, the new look um, document. So if you want to know where my sympathies are, uh, <laughs> read that one. Uh, and um, Because I think that's, that one strikes the right balance of ideology and history. Um, but um, so maybe as I was reacting, I was probably reacting more to how people described the long telegram more than the long telegram itself. In other words, people tended to put it in this box and to say, well, here's Canon explaining how Russian history is really dictating Soviet intentions. Um, and it, as a sort of, I was being too reactionary and automatically uh, resisting that and saying, no, it, you know, Kennan's wrong. Ideology is more important. That's what's driving Soviet intentions. And I was doing that thing I was saying you should never do, which is assuming there are two options, right? Um, so I've kind of come around, I think, from reading the actual document rather than what people write about it. I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but uh, but just teaching teaching the actual telegram so many times has uh, um, rather than reading what other people said about it um, has made me become more sympathetic to it. And again, I w I'm not saying I would say that the balance is exactly right or how we would even judge that, but um, um, both things can be true simultaneously. The Russians were Russian and the Soviets were Soviet, <laughs> you know, those two things are not mutually exclusive. They they can both exist, and I, I think that's probably the way I have come to view the uh, long telegram. Right. Dave, would you care to elaborate? Sure. So we did. We got a question in the chat feature that asked if um, Stalin was as ideological as Lenin, or or was he moving more to uh, just being a non-ideological uh, dictator? toward the end of his reign. And I think to use the long telegram to address that uh, great question, what we see Kennan doing is de-emphasizing the importance of personality in, in Russian rule. And there's a key passage in which he does mention Lenin, uh, but this is in reference to the establishment of the Bolshevist regime. Uh, and as Kennan puts it, Marxist dogma was rendered even more truculent and intolerant by Lenin's interpretation. Uh, and, and end quote. And then he goes on to say, this is a vehicle for for Russian insecurity. And so, to connect back to Stephen's point, I mean, yes, we have the simultaneous existence of uh, fidelity to Marxist dogma, but also this undercurrent of traditional Russian paranoia uh, and distrust of the outside world. And in this particular passage, uh, Kennan really tilts toward saying that Marxism, as much as the, the Soviets talk about it and appear to be 
uh, true believers, uh, it's really a veil. I mean, he uses the metaphor of a fig leaf. It is fig leaf of their moral and intellectual respectability. Without it, they would stand before history at best as only the last of that long succession of cruel and wasteful Russian rulers who have relentlessly forced the country onto ever new heights of military power in order to guarantee external security of their internally weak regimes, end quote. And at another point, he talks about Marxism as, as trappings. So uh, I, I find this one of the more fascinating parts of the document because we see uh, Kennan tilting toward um, presenting the Soviet leadership, and, and again, um, it doesn't matter who's in power. They're all going to pretty much act the same way. It doesn't matter whether it's Lenin or Stalin, Kennan is saying. Um, they're using Marxism to conceal but also justify what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and remember, this is the other thing. This is a great thing about Kennan being so historically minded is he, he was around for all this stuff. He saw the internal politics insofar as he was allowed to. He was a very shrewd observer. He remembered that Stalin was the moderate. You know, we often think about Stalin as being, oh, he's this wild-eyed Bolshevik. No, no, no. In that group, he was the middle of the road. So, so uh, I, and by the way, I'd also say David Krugler, that was per Everything he said was perfect. I, I hope people really appreciate how good that was with you, that little summary you just gave. That was excellent. Um, but the other thing I would say is that... Um, um, just to prove that uh, Stalin was still a Bolshevik, remember what Molotov said. This was one of the things that was, I don't, I'm trying to remember if this was originally classified or not, but I know it's in another Gaddis book called uh, We Now Know. I, um, and uh, he said, uh, Molotov said, never forget how Stalin viewed war, that the, that the first world war had freed one nation the Second World War had, had spread, um, you know, Marxism to uh, um, throughout Europe, and the Third World War will make the world sort of uh, will make it possible for uh, Bolshevism to spread throughout the world. So Stalin was expecting for there to be a Third World War that would allow Marxism and Bolshevism to spread throughout the world, and and. Um, I think Kennan got it absolutely right when he said, uh, at least with that generation, especially the ones who were up to their necks in blood, uh, that it was not the personality of Stalin, uh, you know, that was important. It was the ideology and it was the history. I, I, I ask our, our participants who have submitted questions. There are some great ones to, to bear with me. I'm trying to, uh, uh, to to work through them logically in terms of looking at the origins of the address and analyzing it, and then getting to some of the uh, some of the results. Um, I, I do want to get to uh, Stacy Moses's question. Uh, she uh, she says that that the long telegram came not long before Churchill's Iron Curtain speech and asks if there's any evidence these two men were in contact with one another, and are there, is, are there grounds for comparing these, these two? Are there, are there any glaring contrasts or, or, or similarities between uh, the long telegram and, the, uh, and the, uh, uh, the Iron Curtain speech? I don't know of anything. David, do you know of anything? Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know that 
Kennan and Churchill were in, in direct contact with one another. I would doubt it, uh, since Kennan was um, within the Soviet Union at the time, and Churchill was out of power and, and traveled to Missouri to give that speech as a private citizen, yes, at the invitation of the president, but still as a, as a private citizen of the UK. But I think when we have documents as important as these two, um, we can think about them so long afterward as speaking to one another. Now, of course, Churchill would not have seen this document, but I think that makes it all the more important that there are some parallels because they're thinking uh, uh, in the same ways on certain subjects. And to make that specific, uh, one of the more famous, if not the most famous lines from Churchill's uh, speech is, the Iron Curtain dropping, and he's ticking off uh, cities and places in, in Eastern and Central Europe where, where, where the, the so-called curtain has, has fallen. Um, I mean, this is making vivid and uh, putting it much more succinctly what Kennan is talking about with Russian expansionism, uh, Soviet expansionism, and they're going to test for points of weakness. Uh, and so I think that's what Churchill is saying, is that they, they have found the weakness, they have found the soft spots and, and now they, they've, they've hardened a the line there, and will they continue to do so? Will the iron spread, if you will? Mm -hmm. And that was seen as being a very typically Russian thing, which is we, you just sort of hang out, and if, you, and if you feel any weakness anywhere along your border, you just take that territory. All right, that's just a very Russian way of doing things. One of the most striking things for me of this document is his distinction between what the Soviets are likely to do on the quote-unquote official plane and the subterranean plane. What is this subterranean plane? And, and, and one of our, uh, one of our uh, participants tonight, Joe Rooney, asks in particular about the, quote, progressive and democratic elements. What does he mean by that? Yeah, th that's a great question, John, connecting those two, because uh, Kennan means that the, the Soviets are going to carry out uh, activities within other nations um, covert activities. They're going to interfere with domestic affairs uh, mm -hmm. to serve their interests. Uh, and he points out in that passage that uh, Joe Rooney uh, mentioned that they have communistic parties already. And the American, uh, the Communist Party of the United States of America was founded in 1919. But they also have what, and it's interesting that Kennan says, for tactical purposes, I will call them the progressive and democratic elements. I mean, there's Kennan being, being tactful. Uh, and diplomatic. I mean, he's referring to um, the left side of American politics, where there was a lot of sympathy for the Soviet Union's international aims. And so I, I think he's there, Kennan, referring to uh, the Wallace, the Henry Wallaces of the uh, uh, American political system. Yeah. yeah, and you have to go back to a time when American politics was very different, too, because we're, we've grown so comfortable, I haven't, but it seems like the rest of the world has grown so comfortable using the terms right and left all the time that we assume that it's sort of always been that way. Um, there was a time when if you were a liberal, you would have not considered yourself a person of the left, in the years come, especially in the years coming out of the Second World War. And I'd um, uh, point you guys to a book by... Uh, um, Kevin uh, Matson, When America Was Great, The Fighting Face of Post-War Liberalism. And it's all about all these liberals who are going nuts over people calling them leftists. Uh, 
because the left was the left and liberals were liberals and uh, never the twain shall meet, but not from the Soviet perspective. The, the, the Soviets were interested in hitting every single sort of level of society at every age, and they were playing a long game. So those, they were, think about how, how shrewdly they were, um, you know, as David pointed out, yes, you have the Communist Party, but they have a presence in every single socialist group, every trade union, every student group. I mean, they are just everywhere probing for weakness, looking for allies, and seeking to influence um, American behavior through these various people. And it, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's diabolical and shrewd. I mean, and it's not limited in any way um, uh, to just the self-proclaimed communist. It was, where can we... Where can we weasel in anywhere yeah. among anyone who can be sympathetic or can be used? Ne nevertheless, I think it's important to, to note that, that Kennan isn't simply looking at every group that's left of center and saying this is you know these are, are, are these are puppets of uh, of, the, of Soviet foreign policy, right? right? Right, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've I've used Wallace as as an example twice tonight, but uh, we should point out that, uh, and this gets to your uh, observation, Stephen, about uh, more fluidity between political lines in the in the mid 20th century. Wallace was a Republican for much of his political life before he became a Democrat, and then and that made him a marked man within the Democratic Party. Once he became Roosevelt's um, vice president, he was not seen as as, as a true uh, liberal, a true Democrat. Uh, and, and progressivism was something that uh, the liberal wing of the Republican Party had adopted. I mean, it, 1924 is not that long before Kennan is writing, really. Uh, and that's the year that uh, Robert La Follette ran uh, as president um, at the head of the Progressive Party and, and doing so out of uh, his um, Republican background. Yeah, this is, this is something really worth, worth emphasizing that, that you would find uh, liberals in the Republican Party who were far to the left of, uh, of, of conservatives in the Democratic Party and, and vice versa. So you don't have the, uh, the, the ideological purity, for want of a better term, that, that you find in the, uh, in the parties today. And it well, doesn't matter. For, oh, sorry, John. Just very quickly, it doesn't matter for the Soviets. Kennan is saying. I mean, they're going to just find at that subterranean level anyone they yeah. can work with, as you they're point probing out, for manipulate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but their biggest enemies are left-wing parties that they don't control. Right? These are the these are the false friends of the people that uh, that that uh, are even even worse than the reactionaries because the reactionaries are. Are uh, uh, say what they mean, whereas the false friends of the people are are, are seeking to cover up uh, capitalism with honeyed words about the workers, right? Right. So, what are the um, the implications of Kennan's interpretation of of the Soviet Union for your for U.S. foreign policy, both at the time and because Wendy asks uh, for now, what what could U.S. policymakers today take from Kennan to understanding post-Soviet Russia. I think it's your turn, Stephen. Uh, okay. All right. Well. So, in the short term, I'll say what he really did was the reason its, it, it's influence in the 
from the day it was received was that it seemed to be a good description of reality and it seemed to be a pretty good predictor of behavior. For Truman, I mean, this is almost entirely forgotten, but one of the things that Truman really couldn't understand was why are the Soviets not leaving northern Iran? You know, it, it was genuinely confusing to him, you know, so he was kind of looking for a better explanation of what was happening. And so then, so the, the long telegram uh, is influential in that regard. The, the thing that kind of blows it out of the water is one of the other documents from tonight, it, uh, NSC 68. But again, NSC 68, when it was first received by the Truman administration, was seen as being, well, this is too radical. This is describing a, the Soviets who were um, too, um, uh, too aggressive, and they would never do something like this. And so um, I don't know if this is literally true or if, if Hamby was speaking figuratively, but he said in a seminar once, he's like, Harry Truman put it in his desk and didn't look at it. Yeah. And he didn't take it out until the Korean War started. So it was only after the Korean War started that, some, that, that Truman pulled out NSC-68 and said, wait a minute, what, what is this? <laughs> because of this one, this document says they're willing to start wars. Uh, so in a way... Uh, the long telegram's time of greatest influence was, um, you know, four or five years, <laughs> you know. Now, uh, I would say in the, so that's the sort of short-term answer. In the sort of intermediate-term answer, people have often said this, the significance of long telegram is that it really describes the overarching American policy during the Cold War, which is, containment and that's i guess that's fine if we're if we really are in a hurry <laughs> uh and we can't go any further then yeah it's fine now, Dave. the the more the, the 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 thing that's most interesting to me of course is is that um it does seem to be describing something longer and deeper in russian history for today uh, mm -hmm. that's all I'll say about that <laughs> okay. Dave? Alright, so I'm going to address the, the second part of the question uh, the one that Stacy asked about what guidance it might provide for us today um, and I'm going to refer to the, the fact that we do have an indictment of numerous Russian individuals for interference in the last election I'm correct in stating that, right? I mean, several yeah. individuals and organizations have been indicted I want to connect that directly to Part four, um, section A of the long telegram. Um, and this is within um, the context of what may be expected by way of unofficial or plausibly deniable actions, that is the subterranean plane uh, from the Soviet Union. Uh, and Kennan says we can expect, quote, to undermine, expect the Soviets to, quote, undermine general political and strategic potential of major Western powers. Efforts will be made in such countries to disrupt national self-confidence, to hamstring measures of national defense, to increase social and industrial unrest, to stimulate all forms of disunity. All persons with grievances, whether economic or racial, will be urged to seek redress, not in mediation and compromise, but in defiant, violent struggle for destruction of other elements of society, end quote. If you just pull that part out, I mean, I think it would describe the purposes of the Russian individuals whose direct connection to the Russian government has not yet been proven 
in actions to create false social media identities and, and try and connect with uh, social justice groups and other groups and, 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 and foment uh, dissent. I mean, that seems to be a parallel, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> I mean, this reads out of a paragraph out of that House Intel report. I mean, you could take this paragraph and put it into their report and not notice any sort of change in style. Um, I also think the sections uh, that, where he discusses the, the, the Soviet or the Russian disregard for objective truth fits in as well. I kept thinking of fake news when I, when I read it, that the purpose is not necessarily to convince people that the particular view being expressed is correct, but to sow doubt about all facts, right? Well, in the end, the, the goal is to, is to put out so much confusing, contradictory stuff that people throw up their hands and say, I can't trust any, any media source. Exactly. Yeah. <coughs> no, it's true. And it, and it, it works. It, it worked then it works now. Uh, okay. and if anything, it works better now than it worked then. Um, uh, simply because there were more gatekeepers, um, and not just gatekeepers, uh, but gatekeepers who were, who believed in the American system, who would actively prevent, um, you know, this sort of Russian-style disinformation. One of my favorite stories from the Cold War is, I'm sorry to hijack this again, but is of the uh, journalist Joseph Alsop, who was a homosexual, and the, um, but he was also a Cold War hardliner. And when he was in Russia, they, uh, um, the Russians organized a, a tryst for him, uh, and you know, filmed it and had audio of it and took pictures of it and everything. And um, then the KGB, you know, approached Alsop and said, "Well, you know, we're not asking you to do anything, but you know, there may come a time, and that time may never come, when we want, you know, we want, uh, you know, some sympathetic coverage in one of your columns." And think about what it meant to be a closeted homosexual in the 1930s and 40s, right? This man is, he, he should have a statue built to him. This is how patriotic Joseph Alsop is. He took the dossier that was supposed to be used to blackmail him, and he went straight to the CIA, or he went straight to the uh, station chief and said, look what the Russians are trying to do to me. Uh, I mean, uh, this is the ultimate act of patriotism for, on, on this American columnist. Like, I might, this might be ruining my career, it might be ruining my life, it might be ruining everything about me, but I hate communism, I love America, and this is how I feel about my country. It's uh, a, it was an incredible act of patriotism on the part of an American journalist. Um, in the uh, remaining time, I'd like to talk a little about the aftermath of, uh, of the long telegram. Um, how was it received? How influential was it on uh, on on leading Americans? I mean, is or or simply how widely was it even circulated? It did receive circulation above and beyond uh, its receipt by the Secretary of State, um, and I think Marshall's um, embrace of of the general message. Um, is evidenced by the approval given to uh, Kennan to publish a revised form under a pseudonym in Foreign Affairs. So I think it's really then, it's, I think it's July of 1947 that the publication is received, and it's an open secret that it's Kennan. Uh, people in the know uh, in Washington 
are aware of that, and I, I don't know exactly when he was outed as, as the author, but it, it you know, wasn't a, a secret that remained until uh, the Cold War was over. Uh, and so then I think it, it begins to get some traction. Uh, by this point, though, uh, Truman has already delivered his, his doctrine speech, um, and I think you know, an interesting question, and I'd love uh, Stephen's thoughts on this, um, how much of an influence was the long telegram or even an executive summary of it uh, on, on Truman? Uh, or is he really drafting the, the Truman speech a year later, uh, working with Dean Acheson, um, who's not yet Secretary of State, but, but very much involved in, in listening to the Brits say, we can't help Greece anymore, you've got to step in? Well, um I think, in a way, uh, what – that's an excellent question, by the way. Gosh, nobody's ever asked me this kind of stuff. I, that's why I love these webinars. Um, this is a really good question. The, um, so you got to remember at this time that Dean Acheson had his own sort of theory of the way the Cold War should work. It's kind of, it was going to be a, kind of an Anglosphere, right, that the proper rulers of the world were going to be the United States and Great Britain. You know, and um, uh, I mean, I'm I'm overstating it for the, to make the point clear. So, to the extent that Kennan's kind of sphere of influence description jibed with that, um, uh, it, it, uh, it certainly influenced Atchison, who was, I mean, at Truman's elbow, right? But there were a couple of other things that were tugging on Truman. One of them was the sort of the ghost of FDR. So um, Truman really did the first, his first thought was almost always, I need to continue what FDR was doing. And then he had to be, so he had to, he almost always had to, you know, he'd go to somebody like a Hopkins or something and, and want to know like a, what would FDR do kind of thing. And then once he had been in office a little while, um, I mean, the longer he was in office um, on his own, uh, there was a little bit less of that, but he did want to continue. And so, I mean, this is why you get this this kind of disbelief from him. Like, you signed this agreement with Franklin Roosevelt. All I'm asking you to do is keep it, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so that leads to this kind of confusion. But um, but in terms of was Truman actively listening? only to Kennan, I, I think you'd have to say no. Um, um, but it did certainly conform with what a lot of his advisors were saying. I mean, being president, especially during those years, especially Harry Truman felt that very differently about the office. Remember what he said in his diary? He said it felt like the whole moon and stars had fell on his head and he described it as being like hit in the head with a hay bale, right? And so, in a way, he's trying to get his feet under him. And he was also a historically minded guy, so he 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 was looking for deeper truths and larger concepts and stuff. But um, but in a lot of ways, Truman is just reacting to world events. And when a new world event comes comes about, he's willing to discard, you know, things that. He had previously accepted and say, well, now this is the reality today. The, the only times when he really resists that 
is when it comes to stuff like domestic subversion, I think is one of the main areas. Now, yeah, go ahead. Ken, Kenan's memoirs, in his memoirs, he suggests that uh, he was totally misunderstood on containment and, that, and, and he became a, a, a very staunch critic of U.S. Cold War foreign policy. Could, could you, just to conclude, say a little about why? Sure. I think that what Kennan never understood, as, as, as deeply entrenched as he was in the workings of government, um, is that international policies, particularly those that are meant to be applied to all of the world, are rarely nuanced. Um, and I think he never fully grasped that, that he could have this complex, nuanced, and literary-minded uh, analysis of, of the Soviet Union, but that when a president gets up to speak to Congress and asks for $400 million, he's talking about Marxism as a fig leaf. He's going to be talking about there's one way of life in the world that's good, and there's one way in the life that's bad, and this is what we fought World War II for. Um, you know, referring, of course, to the, the, the core message of, uh, the, of the Truman Doctrine. Uh, so I think he just never understood that, um, that as someone who was never elected to public office, it's a very different process once you're there, especially when you're at the top. Yeah, no, I agree. And I throw in a couple of other elements that, uh, number one, it's just a habit of, you know, in, in one way, I was more of a pure intellectual many years ago. And I had a lot of, and I thought I was really smart back then. Uh, and now that I'm a little bit more involved in politics, um, what's constantly shocking to me is how completely absurd the process of making law or implementing policy actually is. You know, in uh, so Kennan uh, sort of has this dual role of. Uh, on one hand, he is in, he has this incredible knowledge of Russian history, Russian culture, this incredible sympathy for the Russian people. Uh, not just that, but he also understands Bolshevism, he understands Marxism, he understands how it um, uh, influenced how Marxism was uh, in um, uh, influencing Soviet policy. And maybe the frustration comes with the fact that there aren't that many George Kennans in the world. You know, there isn't a George Kennan for every other country on earth. Um, and uh, so when policy is being implemented, it's uh, it really is amazing how many hands get on that policy and how absurdly it can turn. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll end with my favorite story about John Gaddis, which I hope is true, but... but uh, Apparently, John Gaddis went to the American Political Science Association and just went one year, just went from panel to panel, and said, um, uh, and he only asked one question, which is, "Where is the independent variable?" And, uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know if that's actually true, but boy, I hope it's true. But uh, how it pertains to this situation here is that one of the things that's hard for intellectuals <coughs> to wrap their heads around is that the world can't be made perfect that you know there, there's it's simply too complex for someone to wrap their heads around and no matter how perfect my ideas are boy once human beings get a hold of them it's going to be a mess all right well i want to thank both of our uh, our panelists for their contributions this is a 
a, a, a subject of particular interest to me because I, uh, my senior year of college, I got to meet George Kennan. Uh, John Gaddis brought him into town for a, for a conference, and I, I got to shake his hand. It was a, uh, quite a moment. But, uh, but again, thank you uh, to both, uh, both Steve and, and David for their uh, contributions, as well as to our participants for the great questions. I uh, just want to remind you, you will be receiving an email uh, in the next week with a link for a certificate of participation. Uh, you, if you've enjoyed today's webinar, I hope that you will consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. These are offered as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. You can also help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you will receive by email next week. Please share that with your colleagues as well as on social media. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, April 18th, when our subject will be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. At that time, I will be joined by Dr. Jay Green of Covenant College and Dr. Lucas Morell of Washington and Lee University. The recommended readings for that seminar have been posted. We hope to see you all back here on April 18th. Thanks again, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.